0: Um, If you have a Bible, you can go to the book of Acts, chapter 3, Acts chapter 3. We're like four weeks into this series, and we've made it through three chapters, so it's going to take us about six years to get through the book of Acts. Uh, But Acts chapter 3 is where we're going to be. We are in a series that we've called Reset, and we're moving through the book of Acts, kind of one chapter at a time. As, as you get there, Carrie and I were talking this week. We we have kind of, and I, I don't want to brag, but I'm going to a little bit. We've kind of, over the past couple years, entered this space of life where our, with our kids where it feels like a shift has taken place. I don't know if this will make sense or not, but maybe if you're a parent with older kids, it will. Uh, if you have older kids and you don't feel this shift, then we're going to pray for you. But, but, it, but for us, the shift feels like the necessity of us being involved at every level of our kids' day isn't as pressing as it used to be. Do you guys know what I'm talking about there? Like, let me let me explain it this way. Like, you remember the baby stage, right? Like, the, the baby stage of kids, every second of every day revolves around the way your kid is breathing, the way they're twitching, and when they go to the bathroom, and what colors emerge when they go to the bathroom. Remember those moments? And so, when they sleep, you tiptoe through the house, and if the cat gets too loud, you shoot it with a tranquilizer gun. Like, you just do Some of you killed the cat already, but when the baby sleeps, you go as quick as you can to the bedroom just for a nap. That's it. Like, that's all you're going to do. You're going there to rest. You're playing with them. You're feeding them. You're burping them. Whatever it takes, they are the center of the world, of your world. And you eat when they let you. And if you don't, you lose weight. And praise be to God, right? They, that's what happens. They, they, that's just how it goes. You sleep when they sleep. And then toddlerhood comes, and it's built around a motto that they don't tell you, but everybody gets it. And the motto is simple. Don't let them die right? Like, toddlerhood is just don't let them die. Like, they get legs that help them stand up, but they walk like drunk people, and they touch everything and try to eat things that can poison them and stick their fingers in sockets, and it's just simple. If you have a toddler, don't let them die. And listen, I get that the teenager stuff is tough. There are emotions. There are emotions in my house right now. There's drama at times, but for us, and I'm not prescribing this to anyone else who feels differently, but this is just us. For us, with a 10th grader, an 8th grader, a 5th grader, and one gainfully employed adult, well done, Stephanie. We feel like right now, at least, we can breathe a little bit. Like, if they eat poison at this point, it's kind of their fault. My parents are not happy about this. Here's my point. Here's my point. With kids, our priorities change at every stage of their journey. Let me give you an example. I remember one time Carrie and I, since we've been married, we've always loved game nights with friends. And before kids, we could do it any time we wanted. Like we could go to work all day long. We could come home. We could stay up playing games as late as necessary, no problem. Up till 2, back at work at 7, no worries. We'd be good. But then with kids, when the babies were born and our, our first two girls were 21 months apart, we couldn't stay awake past 9 p.m. Like there was no way. It was a God-given moment if we were up till 9.30. And, and we were just trying to keep them alive, not kill ourselves or each other in the process. So game nights went away, and when they slept, we fell into bed. But here's what happened. There's this game, right? I believe it's the perfect board game called Settlers of Catan. Anybody played it? Settlers of Catan is an amazing game. And we started playing it with friends right before the girls were born, and it was amazing. We love it. And when you see Adam Burnside, make sure you tell him that you heard I'm a way better player than he is. And so... When we had Malia and we couldn't play it for like first twenty months or so, we were really missing game nights. So here's what happened: just about the time Presley was born and Carrie was ready to go insane from diaper fatigue, we met some new friends and decided to have them come over for a game night. We got brave to play Catan. They loved the game. We loved the game. We needed a fun night, so we decided to suck it up and they came and played at like eight p.m. We were so proud of ourselves. We got the kids to bed. We ate some sugar, drank some caffeine, and we jumped in. And about 11 p.m., Carrie and I started glancing at each other and kind of doing that communication thing that only married couples can do where you don't talk but you know what you're saying. And we were like, this is over. Like, we're ready to go home. Like, you talk in full paragraphs with your eyes. Everybody get this? And we basically said to each other, it's time for these people to leave if they want any chance of staying our friends. The problem was they didn't have any kids so they didn't realize what they what we were saying, and they wanted to play the game again. Again! Who starts a board game with kids at 11 p.m. when you have a newborn? And, and so that's when Carrie's eyes started screaming at me, like, you are in trouble. Get them out of here. And I'm like, I can't. I don't, and I was just begging for mercy. I had no idea of how to do this. And those beautiful green eyes of my wife moved from panic to serial killer maniac when the game finally ended at 3 a.m. It was awful. We got that sweet couple out of our house. We've never talked to them again. (laughs) It's never happened. And we couldn't decide whether we wanted to stay up and yell about how rude they were or just fall into bed and try to survive the hour and a half before Presley woke up. The truth is, here's the reality, as inconsiderate as we thought that couple was, they weren't inconsiderate at all. They just had different priorities. They just had a different lens for looking at life. They didn't have kids, so they didn't have a bedtime. So here's the principle for today. There are moments that reset our priorities. There are things that shift the way we do life. For us, game night changed the moment we had kids instantaneously. You've you've been there if you're a parent. Priorities shift. I never realized how selfish I was until I had kids, and I couldn't believe they would interrupt my sleep. And in many ways, parenting feels like an exercise in my own awareness of of this selfishness. And we see this in other ways, right? Like I can go to Croke with a list, a grocery list. Are you with me? And it's focused, and it's healthy, And I do well until I walk down the Cheetos aisle. And then that list doesn't matter because my priorities change, right, guys? Amen? Come on. And the list goes out the door, and that's just what happens. This is why Target puts 12 racks of cheap $1 junk that every teacher seems to think is essential for educating students today because they know our priorities can change in a moment. But sometimes we get moments that actually reset our priorities, like someone passes away close to us from a heart attack, I bet you instantaneously rethink your health as a priority. You hit Control-Alt-Delete, and now you've got to start priorities over. Someone gets a terminal diagnosis, and immediately the way they invest their time is revolutionized. Their priorities shift. Everything that's meaningless doesn't really matter. Major moments can reset our priorities. And, and here's what I was thinking about this week. At the core of what it means to follow Jesus is a sense that our priorities should change. When we follow Christ, our priorities should shift. We are no longer the center of our own lives, that Jesus is. He invites his disciples. He says, come follow me. That means they will give up whatever else they've been following. He tells the rich young man, you're going to have to sell everything. If you want to follow me, your priorities are going to have to change. He tells a man who wants to bury his father and mother before he follows Jesus to let the dead bury their own dead. And he suggests that if you're going to follow him, you're going to have to pick up a cross and count the cost. These are all statements that could could reshape, reset, shift our priorities. He might say to Carrie and I all those years ago, if you're going to follow me, game nights may last till 3 a.m. I don't know if I'd follow Jesus at that point, right? Major life moments always reset. Our priorities, and here's here's what I want you to grab onto today. When we encounter Jesus, He resets our priorities. He shifts what matters most in our life. As we've been working through the book of Acts, we've seen the church in Acts begin to develop. We've seen the apostles, Jesus' disciples, move from this scared and confused bunch of failures to this empowered community, watching the Jesus movement grow to 3,000 new believers in one day. That's what we talked about last week. Now, here's the cool thing about Acts. Acts has this weird rhythm to it. It kind of does this shifting thing of broad strokes. Like in chapter 2, we get this Pentecost moment where the Spirit rushes And then we get this long sermon from Peter, and 3,000 were saved. It's this massive movement. And then it's going to shift as we read today, and it's going to zero in on this small, intimate moment with one other person. And that's the story that we're going to look at. Look at Acts 3, verse 1. I want to read the first 10 verses, and then I'm going to unpack some points for you from it today. Here's what it says One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now, a man. Who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money, and Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, Look at us. And so the man gave him this attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, Silver or gold I don't have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And that's the centerpiece of this passage. We'll come back to that a few things I want to draw out of this passage. First, this was not just a major moment in this guy's life. It was the major moment. Like when you've been lame from birth and your life consists of begging for money at the temple and you're suddenly healed, this is the moment you tell everybody about. This is the major shift. Everything about this moment would transform his life. It's a conversion moment. It might be the moment he said, I got saved when I was healed, right? Peter and John also are going to the temple. Acts 2, verse 46, we read this last week, tells us this was the habit of the apostles. This was what the early church did as part of their everyday. They would worship together and break bread in homes, and then they would worship at the temple courts. And so, as this church is described, this is part of the regular elements. They would pray at the temple. And what this means, this is really critical to understand in the early church, they still consider themselves to be part of the Jewish movement. If they saw themselves as a brand new expression of, of some kind of religion, they wouldn't have gone back to the temple. But they were practicing Jews, praying at regular times. And as they go, they find this man who's been lame from birth. Now, this tells us a couple things, right? He has suffered greatly. If he's been lame and crippled from birth, and we're going to talk more about this in a little bit, but he's had a long and painful life. But he's also in this space probably every day, money that he gets by begging, And the Jewish religion taught that it was part of righteousness. It was an act of justice to practice charity for those in need. So this man is showing up at the temple. Someone apparently carries him to make a living. It's the very best he can do. So he is, in this amazing moment, healed in the name of Jesus, Peter and John say. He's healed. And he goes from being a lame beggar. And this may be the only sermon that you need today. He goes from being a lame beggar to a leaping worshiper. He comes alive. He leaps his way into the temple. What an incredible moment, and how this would have reset his priorities and reshaped everything about his life. He's sitting outside hoping for money, and now he's fully engaged in the worship of Yahweh. So we know, if you're a parent, we know our kids shift our priorities, right? Seeing loved ones suffer shifts our priorities. For me, the Cheetos aisle at Kroger, I don't care about any other potato chips. It's the Cheetos aisle shifts my priorities, but how much more should our encounter with Jesus shift our priorities? But, but here's the thing, and this is kind of a sidebar I want you to grab onto. Pa- parents, did you ever get a night out without kids when they were little? Just hands up. Like, when, when the kids were little, you finally got that night out. Remember how good it was? Like, you found someone you trusted not to let your toddlers die, because that's the motto. And I, you left them with them, and you went out to dinner and a movie. Remember the good old days? You went out to dinner and a movie and and you you left the kids with a babysitter for maybe three hours, 7 to 10 p.m. And then when you get back, you're talking to the babysitter and you ask, how did it go? And they look at you with their sweet little 16-year-old eyes and they just go, holy cow, I'm exhausted. Or they look at you and they go, they were so easy. And either way, you just want to slap them in the head. Right? Because it's been three hours. That's all you had. And here's what I think. I think some of us, Instead of truly encountering Jesus, we've just babysat Him. See, I think instead of of really allowing Jesus to impact every part of our lives, like we've picked Him up in our lives for a bit, and we think, "Well, that wasn't so bad. I got saved. I made a. Pr- I prayed a prayer at church. I I committed- I changed my status on Facebook and told people I was a Christian. And we were actually not encountering Jesus. We're just kind of spending a little bit of time. In his realm, because our life still looks the same and our priorities haven't really changed all that much. See, what I want to call you today to today is to encounter Jesus like this lame man, to experience him in the way that shifts everything, to move from begging to leaping in worship and having every priority of your life reset. So I want to show you four ways that this guy's priorities shifted, that everything about him changed. And and, and not just him, that in Peter and John, by the way, this is the very first healing we see in Acts. And that their priorities began to shift. So the first thing I want you to see here is that both Peter and John and the lame man were doing the things they did every single day. Their day wasn't different. They weren't doing something uh, just crazy new or random or sporadic. They were doing the same thing every day. Peter and John are going back to the temple for prayer. This is what we're told that they do in Acts 2 as the church. They meet together. They break bread. Then they go to the temple courts, and they worship and pray. Did you ever notice how today in our world, it seems like there's this pressure to chase the extraordinary? Like everything has to be epic all the time. If your vacation is not Instagram worthy, did you really vacation? we got to chase what it, what, it, what, it, what it looks like to be extraordinary. Like the ordinary feels too mundane at times. And here's why. Ordinary isn't glamorous, but it's where we spend the majority of our time. Do ever think about that? It's where we live day in and day out. Like all those studies that tell us how much time we spend sleeping. Do you know you'll spend about a third of your life sleeping? Some of you, it's like, it's, it's up there a little higher. Or eating. You're going to spend almost four years of your life eating. Or driving over four years, or working, good news, only about 10 years of your life is gonna be spent working. Or watching TV, about nine years, well done, some of you. We look at those things and it can feel like we're just stuck in the mundane and people don't really post pictures of the mundane. Like nobody puts a shot up going, brush my teeth again, hey, I won today, look at me. We don't do that. But we do chase the extraordinary. We take the resources we work for, the money, the vacation time, and we do everything we can to create the extraordinary. We post these epic pictures of our vacations that send us incredibly deep into debt. And we live with so much energy energy going to create amazing moments, extraordinary moments. And I think the first shift in priorities we see here and the first shift we need to adopt with our priorities is a shift from chasing extraordinary to finding the extra in the ordinary. I'm going to say that again. We have to stop chasing the extraordinary and begin to find the extra in the ordinary. What I love about this story is that Peter and John were going to the same prayer meeting they went to every day. Can you imagine if I said, hey, church, guess what we're going to do for the next 7 to 12 months? We're just going to pray every Sunday morning for an hour. How many of you would still come? Be honest. What would that look like? I love that they were doing the same, that the lame man was going to the same place to beg that he went for every day of his life. And yet in those ordinary moments, they found something extra. Friends, one of the priorities I think we all so often miss is the way the ordinary life that we live is filled with extraordinary grace. If I've felt anything in this pandemic where life slowed down, it's the sense that the normal everyday things can become amazing. Waking up, sitting on my back porch, reading a book is incredible. And God met me there. Spending time doing nothing with my family, but watching movies has been divine and there in this regular everyday scene at the table at the temple, the extraordinary happens in the ordinary. And I wonder how often we miss the extra in our ordinary. The thing I love so much about the stories of Jesus are the way ordinary things come into play. Like he teaches using the things around him. He finds fruit and he says, let me tell you about the vine and the fruit seeds and harvest. He works miracles out of mud. He takes bread and wine and makes them holy, and he takes a cross, the ordinary object of curses and pain, and makes it the place of hope through the life of resurrection. See, when you truly encounter Jesus, ordinary things will become a little bit extra. We find relationships filled with meaning and mission. We see vocations through the lens of Christ's work. Our kids are given to us then to steward and lead towards Jesus. Our friends became the community of the church and our life, and we see differently because our priorities of the extra and the ordinary shift. And see, in the church, we've missed this. We've segmented this. And and just think about your own thinking. If you grew up in the church, think about this. Because this really comes out of Greek philosophy, not Judeo-Christian thinking. We segment as the church the holy and the unholy Into pockets. We define the sacred and the secular in two different realms. And you see how that plays out? You come to church thinking of this space as holy space, and you go to work thinking of it as ordinary. And so you approach faith as just this bus ticket to heaven, but the rest of life is just about getting through it. And it leaves us in this perpetual state of chasing our faith as extraordinary experiences rather than living our faith in the magic of every ordinary day. Friends, when you encounter Christ, And remember, I'm talking not just about babysitting him in your life, but about actually encountering his work. Everything becomes holy. Everything about your life becomes holy. The holiness of conversations and day jobs and dreams and even dirty diapers and thunderstorms and brushing your teeth, it's all holy. And so we put in the work every day to wake up and say, I'm going to read the scriptures. I'm going to pray. I'm going to spend time with God because I want to find the extra in the ordinary. Here's the second shift. The second shift in priorities needs to take us a little deeper. I want to show some more of the context of this story. In this passage, we're told in verse 2 that this man was lame from birth. Now, that tells us a lot about this man, especially in the Greco-Roman culture. See, in this world, as far back as Aristotle, there was a field of science. Are you ready? I'm going to teach you a word. And the word was physiognomy. Everybody say physiognomy. I know, it's hard. I practiced many times this week. You can work on it. In physiognomy, the scientists and the philosophers of the day were promoting this belief that the physical characteristics of someone could deeply represent their inner moral characteristics. So, for instance, if you like, looked like a sheep, come on, let's be honest, you've seen some sheep-looking people, then you would surely act like a sheep, But if you looked like a wolf, then you might be a predator. Physiognomy was a well-believed. They perceived this as science at this time. So part of what we're told regarding this man's healing is that his ankles became strong. Now, let me tell you, that echoes Aristotle. Aristotle actually said, those who have strong and well-jointed ankles are brave in character. Witness the male sex. Sorry, ladies. And he would go on and say, those who have I'm almost. You're, don't throw anything at me. It's Aristotle. Those who have fleshy and ill-jointed ankles are weak in character. Witness the female sex. So offensive. And this is our hero of philosophy, by the way. And by the way, this thinking carried well into history. In the 18th century, a German philosopher said that one could better love one's neighbor by classifying him according to his facial features. Oh my goodness! Right. Obviously, this carried into prejudice toward those who were non-European, which, by the way, is what we understood as ethnicity before this construct of white and black began to emerge. This is what it was considered. Thinking often centered around this uh, vein of opinion one physiognomist promoted, he said soul and body react on each other. When the character of the soul changes, it changes also the form of the body. So press into this in a Jewish religious setting deeply impacted by the Greco-Roman culture. We find a lame man begging who would have from birth been perceived by his larger community as a failure, as a lesser human, a product of broken inner conditions and character in a world full of, I gotta get this, physiognomical. I messed it up. Assumptions. This lame man was identified primarily and only by his brokenness. And I think this is why verses 3 and 4 matter so much here. Read this again. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Now, notice how much looking is going On here, This man sees Peter and John and his assumptions are what they have always been. Maybe these people will give me some money. Maybe this is just another ordinary day where things are always as they have been. Maybe I will get money from them. This is the homeless guy on the street. When's the last time you saw someone homeless and begging for money? Can you remember what they looked like? Can you remember what they wore? Can you remember the color of their eyes? If you're like me, you can't because we don't look at them. We see them as an object of destitution, of need, perhaps poverty, perhaps laziness, perhaps alcoholism. We are still centered on physiognomy. I hope you recognize this. But the verse goes on. Here's what it says. Peter looked straight at him as did John. And then I love this. Then Peter said, look at us. And this is where the shift happens. This is where we need to pay attention because this shift is the same thing Jesus does in us when we encounter him. The man was functioning out of his own needs. He was seeing only his needs, his desires, the money he needed to get through the day. But in this moment when Peter truly looks at him and tells the lame man to look at us, the shift is seen. Here's the second priority shift. We need to shift from seeing our needs to seeing others and being seen. We have to begin to shift from seeing our own needs as the center of our life to truly seeing others and being seen by God. This man in this moment is perhaps for the first time in his life truly seen by Peter and John. They don't simply toss a coin at him. They offer their gaze, and they offer their gaze because they know what it means to be seen by Jesus. They understand what it means to see others because they've been seen by the God of the universe. They understand the eyes of grace in spite of failure, in the middle of hurt and in the depths of their wandering. And because they've been seen by the eyes of grace, they have the ability to look truly with eyes of grace at this man who has often been looked past. And I want you to catch this. This man had stopped asking God for belonging. He was sitting at the place of worship and he wasn't saying, can you please take me in the temple so I can worship my creator? He'd stopped asking for that. He was simply asking to get by in life. But Peter had something greater to give. He had the look of love, and that love came from Jesus. Friends, we need this in our culture today. You see, for the Jewish people, the work of justice meant you would give to those in need. Charity was the practice of justice, as I said. But for Peter, he takes the requirement of the religious law and does more than just offer money to this man. He offers belonging and a gaze that invites the lame man to a fuller being. He says, look at us, because he knows in being seen This man may one day see others. Friends, if you think that the incredible polarity and anger we see ripping us apart today over issues of politics, race, religion, are just issues. And people just don't get it. Whatever side you're on, then you're missing what God wants to say. These issues are more than that. They're the chance to see others. Who are hurting, who are broken, who are lonely, angry, abused, abandoned, and suffering in the hands of injustice. And if you think we are past the days of physiognomy where we make assumptions of character based on surface perceptions of appearance, then you're missing the opportunity to follow Christ into a world that's hurting. Friends, when you've encountered Christ at the deepest level, you cannot help but see others around you. You cannot help but truly see and recognize the power of grace that's seen you. When we recognize that we've rejected Christ, refused his grace, and been found responsible for his crucifixion because of our sins, and yet have been loved, and yet have been loved, then we will wake up to the reality of what it means to be seen by God. And then we'll learn to see in new ways. We'll see others with grace We'll see others with love. We'll see others with humility, with joy, with kindness, with peace, patience, gentleness, faithfulness. See, physiognomy is still a justice issue. To learn to see others with love first matters. And that happens by only being seen by God. Here's the third shift. We come to verse 6. It's kind of the centerpiece of this narrative, the central focus in this story. The man expects to get something. He looks directly at Peter and John, but he does so because he thinks they're going to give him money. Okay, sure, I'll look at them. Maybe they'll give me money. And he expects they're going to give it perhaps a lecture about being a harder worker. Can you imagine that in a culture? Well, here's a dollar, but make sure you put it to good use. I'll take you and get some food because I don't want you to drink it away. But instead, Peter utters these words, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And that's the third shift, the place where expectations encounter Jesus, the place where this man's life is reoriented. It's the shift from the authority of our desires to the authority of Jesus' desires. It's letting go of what we require and putting our hands and our life in the center of what Jesus desires. See, his desires, this lame man's desires have been the central authority in his life. He lives based on his desires. I will go to the temple. Someone will help me get there simply to get the money that I need to get by for the day. He had ideas. He went after them every single day. And aren't we the same? Let's go back to the babysitting example. See, when the babysitter takes your kids, they give you temporarily, temporary relief, but they eventually are going to give the kids back, aren't they? I haven't found a babysitter to keep them. Love you, girls see, they get to go back to their life as they knew it, the priorities, their wants, their desires. Many of us do the same thing with Jesus. I was thinking about it this way. Like you're driving a car down the road, and Jesus is on the side of the road, and you're like, cool, it's Jesus. Come on, I want you in my life. Hop in the trunk. Like just get in the trunk, and then we'll keep driving. And when I need you, when I get a flat tire in my life, I'm going to pop the trunk open and pull you out and see how you can meet. And actually, Jesus, you're so cool, I'm going to let you ride in the passenger seat. You can even sit right beside me, but I want to drive the life the way that I want it. See, Jesus wants his authority in your life. And when you encounter him, truly encounter him, you surrender that authority to him. He didn't want to offer the man any more money. He wanted to offer him movement. No more money. We need movement. He didn't want to give tokens. He wanted to give the treasure of salvation. And friends, it's the same story and the same shift for us. When we encounter Jesus, we fall under his authority. We give ourselves to his desires, to his dreams for us, his ideals, missions, purposes, and causes, and customs. This is why Paul says, if we're out of our minds, it's for the sake of Christ. We're going all in on what he has for us. But if you think Jesus is going to keep riding in the trunk of your life, available when you need him, You don't understand Jesus. He's not going to be a second-class citizen in your life. Some of us think if we could just have our desires met, then we could follow Jesus more. But see, Jesus doesn't need to meet your desires for you to live under his authority. You're going to see throughout Acts, when they claim the authority, it's in the name of Jesus. He is the center of authority. He is Lord of the universe. He is the only one who ascended to heaven as king of his kingdom. Here's the last shift. I'm going to wrap it up. Consider how the story ends. The man with weak ankles is healed. Verse 7 tells us instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. And so here's what should have happened in this culture that saw physiognomy as a science. He should have been back to life as expected for a man of good health. Now, here's the thing. Even that life wasn't normal. You see, men of that day, according to these physiognomists, they should have acted like lions. You walk silently. You walk proud. You walk slow. When you enter worship, you move. You, you prowl, right? You let others fear you. You step lightly but boldly. You carry your personhood into the places of worship with nobility and power. I would describe this as white American Christianity. We're so glad to be here today. Don't you feel blessed in worship? You bunch of lions. Doesn't this sound like our gatherings? Put your best face on. Put your best clothes on. Your best image on move into the presence of God by carrying yourself as nobly as possible. But this isn't at all what this healed man does. Instead, in his encounter with Jesus, the man moves in a different way. You know what I would have done if I'd spent my life begging outside the temple and I was finally healed? I would have stood up, got some new clothes, and been like, I hope nobody sees me when I come into worship. Because my life was a wreck, and now it's healed. I'm just going to try to rebuild something quietly. That's not what we're told he does. He doesn't act like a lion. He becomes a leaping gazelle. Look at what it says. He jumped to his feet, began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and leaping and praising God. See, for this man who spent his life being cast out to enter a common space and make a scene would have been quite remarkable and not a good social move, but he does it anyway. He jumps, leaps, and praises, and this man's entire posture changes because of his encounter with Christ. And that's the final priority shift that we need. When you encounter Christ, here's what gets reset in your priorities. You move from crippled to leaping. You don't move from crippled to all put together nice and neat. You move from crippled to leaping to jumping to praising God. You ever watch kids sit for a long time? It happens every Sunday here now, right? You ever watch kids sit for a long time and then be let loose to do whatever it is they want? I remember as a kid that stupid rule about sitting for 30 minutes after you ate before you could swim. That was the dumbest rule on the planet. My friend said, if we eat fish sticks, can we have to sit? Because they're swimmers, right? Like, Or the lifeguard breaks at the pool where we all had to be out of the water. I hated those things because they held me back. And when freedom finally came, when the whistle blew or I was released to the water, my posture reflected my heart. I wasn't tied down anymore. I wasn't bound by rules. I was free, unencumbered, let loose. And you know what's cool here in this story? This is the fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 35, verse 6, this is what was prophesied hundreds of years before this ever happened. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. This man goes into the temple worshiping, leaping, praising God. And I bet all the good, pleasant worshipers are like, well, somebody settle that guy down. See, this is the hope that the Messiah would bring. It's the life that can be found only in Jesus. It's the portrait, friends, of the insecure finding their courage. The man from inactivity, moving from inactivity to walking, from paralysis to praise. He moves from being helped up to leaping freely. And I love this so much because it doesn't look like our church today. It looks like this crazy chaos where, where what we have is all these serious faces, and everybody's just, oh, yeah, ask us to clap, so I'll give him a verse. That's all he gets. And then when the drums break and there's no guitar, we'll clap again to make him think we're still doing it, right? Like, that's, that's what we think. Instead, this man is doing what St. Ambrose taught us. The movement of the body is a sort of a voice for the soul. I love that. The movement of the body is a voice for the soul. This man's let loose. His priorities have shifted. No longer does he merely try to fit in and go unknown. Now he wants to carry boldness for the sake of others, knowing the God who's healed him. And it works. The story closes by saying, when the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gates called Beautiful. This is church, right? Like, did you see who's here? Did you see who came in? Can you believe that they showed up? How did he get in here? Did somebody carry him? Did they set him in the pew? What is going on? Did you hear about his marriage? His marriage fell apart. Right? Does this sound like church? But it says they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is so powerful, right? They recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging. And because of his encounter, his priorities have shifted. They're filled with wonder and amazement. Friends, this is what happens at the beautiful gates. Did you notice the name? The beautiful gate of worship. You know, they can't figure out where this gate actually was in the temple, isn't this cool? Where is the beautiful gate? It's anywhere someone encounters Christ. It's anywhere. It's beautiful anywhere someone encounters Christ, and their lives start to look different. And as your life starts to look different, people around, you know what the most, the greatest tool for reaching others who are lost is? People who are no longer insecure but come leaping into the presence of God. You want to see people come to Christ around you? Let your priorities shift by the encounter that you've had with Christ. What about you today? I'm going to have the band come. Are you seeing the extra in the ordinary? I know, we're so stressed, aren't we? We've got to get back to school in a week. We've got a national election in like eight or nine weeks. We've got to make sure we post accurately on Facebook. And we've got to just do all this stuff, right? And we're all stressed out. And you have friends that are telling you just ignore everything because this is overblown and political. And you got friends telling you that we're all going to die. This is the spectrum we live in. What does it look like for you to see the extra in the ordinary? Have you been seen by Jesus? Friends, do you, do you realize, listen, do you realize that in your deepest mess in the wreck of your life that only you could create or that only that person who hurt you so deeply could create, that's the place where Jesus saw you first. That's the place where he saw you. He says, I've seen you. Don't lose sight of the fact that I've seen you because when you know that I've seen you, those people are never going to make you mad again because I've seen them too. You can begin to see others. Have you been seen? Jesus? Are you truly seeing others? Are you giving up authority of your life to Jesus? I know we've got all these things, these plans, these desires, these dreams, our budgets, our retirement, our college, our career, whatever it is, our relationships. But have you ever just said, Jesus, I don't want any authority over this. I want to put it on the altar and I want you to kill it. I want you to take all of the authority that I have because I'm just going to mess it up. And I want you to take control over it. And then finally, are you leaping? I know it's a weird question. I don't think I've ever asked that question to anybody. Are you leaping in worship of the God who's made your ankles strong, of the God who's healing your life, working in your life in new ways? Can you imagine if in this cultural moment where the collective anxiety is tangible, we began to leap as the worshipers of Jesus? We began to walk into every day filled with hope, when we serve a God who's going to reconcile all races at the end of time. We serve a God who's going to have every tongue praise him. And all those tongues are going to shut up and stop yelling at each other. And every knee that thinks they know what's right and authoritative, they're going to bow before the king. Can you imagine if we leaped in worship to the God who said, I, I will make the darkness tremble because of the authority that I have. Let's stand together and pray and maybe find a way to leap into worship today. God, Jesus, thank you for that moment at the temple. Thank you for the story of that man. Jesus, I can't wait to get to heaven and find out what his name was. I can't wait for him to teach me how to jump. Lord, show us what it means to have our priorities reset. Show us what it means to wake up Every day and celebrate the divine nature of brushing our teeth, of waking our kids up, of walking out the door, of driving this machine that you empowered some human to come up with an idea. God, help us to find the extra in the ordinary. Help us to walk into every place we go, every school that we enter, every building that we go to work in, every coffee shop that we go and order coffee with eyes that say, Jesus, what extra do you want me to see? Is there someone lame here that you want me to see? And how can I invite them to the place of hope? God, help us to give our authority over to you and help us to without shame, without hesitation, lift our hearts, lift our hands, lift our voices in worship to who you are, to move into the presence of God with utter freedom to be the people you've called us to be. God, do a work in us so that you continue your work in the world. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing this out.